0: Mike Duffy called them the Boys in Short Pants. And they're both boys and girls, because I've seen Women and men. Hello, this is episode 75 of the Boys in Short Pants. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Mason Rainville. I forgot to do a joke, it's the 76th episode. Whew, close one. And today we have a very special guest, actually. Uh, I think probably one of the more special guests Ooh. we've ever
1: booked on this show. Out of all 75, are you sure? Uh,
0: well, they haven't been guests for all of those. So, oh, I see, uh, okay. Yeah, it's a small. Okay, there's only
1: three guests, <laughs> this is, this is, a little <laughs> I'm more than that. A special out of three, I'll a take little it. more than I'll that. take it, man.
0: Uh, but MP Nathan Cullen, uh, Skeenable Valley, joins yes, us uh, on the, the twilight of his twilight. last parliament.
1: Twilight. I, I sound so aged at that point. Muscular. <laughs> yes. Very good. Very good. I haven't used that word in a long time. That's a good. I have a cat, so they are oh in fact, very good animals. So I right. yell at uh-huh. him
0: a lot to yeah. accuse him of this. Uh, at any rate, uh, you've had you were first selected in 2004 That's right. uh, for the beautiful riding of Bulkley Valley, which mm-hmm. is the, the northwest quadrant of BC, approximately. Yeah,
1: it's a, it's a third of British Columbia, sort of tucks up against Yukon and Alaska, and all the way down to the middle of the province.
0: Which European country do you usually use as For
1: many years. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) I shamefully referred to our size being equivalent to France and and in the middle of one of the elections I think it was a Green Party candidate in full outrage said it's not France it's closer to Poland how dare you sir (laughs) (laughs) France is much larger and I just I I hadn't I hadn't done my research and he was right yeah Poland well, yeah. that, that's that's a good one. Yeah, it's, that's well, pretty bad. I, I I don't know if that evokes anything in people's minds. I don't know if these I think a good Fran- sense of France yeah. France was better. France
2: is much more commonly visited, much Correct. more well known. Sort but of. Poland
1: is a little undiscovered. Yeah. So I'm hearing from a lot of people, the trains in Poland is the thing you want to do. Fair. And so I'm I'm there just I'm just a little more avant garde so as I've I've heard, uh, I've heard
0: Norway before too. Okay, sure.
1: I can see that. Yeah, so it's, it's big. too Canadian-like. Yeah, that's true. I'm not traveling to anywhere that resembles us at all. I think that that's geographically. entirely reasonable. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks.
0: So there, there are two sort of things that we want to talk about broadly, and we typically are quite discursive on the show, so we, we will probably inevitably get dragged into an in aside or two. Mm. Um, but Etienne wanted to, to lead
2: off, so I will let him do that.
1: Well, that's very magnanimous. It. Is, that, is that how this works?
2: So, I mean, I guess this is, to an extent, the stereotypical question to ask an MP mm. uh, as they exit Parliament. Mm. Um, and Samara makes quite the job of doing this to just about everyone who leaves Parliament. That's right. Um, but it's to ask the, the obvious question, which is, how have you seen the institution change over 14 years?
1: Well, I'm so old uh, in this job that I entered Parliament pre-social media. Of any, of any serious impact. Right. Yeah, so impact. 2004. Facebook was still
0: like on... Well, actually, I think it just started that Harvard. year and yeah, was, only it was available. Still, Facebook was
1: still in Harvard. Yeah, and it I only was not, available in New So York. I'd never <laughs> seen it. Um, <laughs> a, privileged, a privileged few. So I think that's it's, it's one clear line of demarcation in terms of how the conversation around issues happens or between parties and between Canadians. And I, th- I think the it's had many effects, positive, negative. I think its promise was a lot uh, higher than its result. That I, it looked like a town square digitally. Right. It looked like a place you could converse and you could have debate and back and forth. A lot faster than the mail outs and other ways that we talked to Canadians. And I think maybe even early on of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, there was a bit more of that. Options Certainly on Twitter and, and Facebook, that has gone down into some pretty For dark sure. places. So that, that would be one significant way. The speed of things has certainly accelerated. Beyond that, though, I think there's a lot of romanticism of, of Parliament's past, of mm-hmm. ages past, where, oh, we were much more collegial. And they'll point to one or two instances of a liberal and a, a new Democrat or a conservative and liberal sharing an apartment and saying, look, we could do this before. It's unimaginable now. I also looked back at debates, and they scream bloody murder at each other Mm -hmm. every second day. So, I think television was probably the biggest change we ever made to what happens here in Parliament. Other than that, um, there have there been major? I mean, the the global shifts in political thinking, Trump's election, Brexit, those types of things. I've seen the beginnings or nuances of that wash over effect into Canadian dialogue as well. Well,
0: What's interesting, because like I think a lot of people sort of discuss modern politics very much in a pre and post sort of summer to August or summer to uh, autumn 2016 frame, precisely okay. the, the Brexit and Trump moments. Yeah, yeah, Do you think you'd find more to recognize between slightly before that and when you were elected to even now and before just then?
1: I think it was running on fumes, but we did have this global compact uh, an understanding of we're moving towards more small L liberal organizations okay. that we, human rights, freedom of speech, not fascism was, was a general agreement <laughs> that we were all trundling along but the, the you know bowling alone and what's wrong with Kansas and all the, there was these little outcrop ideas that were in the aughts and maybe even before that saying there is a there is an unmet expectation with a whole crop of particularly white particularly middle or working class people in America mm-hmm. and in Europe less so maybe in Canada because of different factors, that is brewing. The storm is brewing. The tension is building. And I think of pe- politics much like tectonic plates. I think there's, there's some times where shifts just happen, but there's other times where there's shifts that happen and they seem quite dramatic, but the pressure that preceded the shift was long in building. Sure. And so like two plates clashing together, you don't notice anything for a long time until the moment they slip. And then you have the San Andreas Fault yeah. and you have San Francisco burning. So Very good West Coast example. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> my writing does have that fault line on it. So to my mind, uh, having spent a lot of time politically in the States, there was this burbling and I guess hindsight now we say, ah, look at all the signs. This this was a potential and this right. was coming. Um, and in Europe, certainly waves and waves of massive immigration and other factors. But just this, this, this sense of the politics of... Uh, I don't want to say bitterness, but certainly disenfranchisement where people feel that the promise of working hard and doing following the rules and all that stuff is unmet. And so where do we go? And the traditional parties have done a poor job in the States and sometimes here of answering that call.
0: Yeah, and in Europe, I think you see sort of like the the German SPD, for instance, sure. is now in comfortable third uh, for the first right. time since you know the 1890s. And I, I
1: worked in Latin America, so I look to those Latin American institutions sometimes quicker. Mm-hmm. The response time is quicker. So in Mexico, in some of the more established Brazilian, Argentinian, Chilean politics, you see parties that kind of got a little lazy because they had occupied the center ground, sort of center ground for so long that they became the de facto so-called natural governing parties. Right. That is a, a persuasive yet deceptively dangerous way to run any political party. Yeah. Because it, it, it gives you, it, it takes away the nervousness and the anxiety that every politician should have.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So, sort of pursuant to that, um, you're, you're, you've you're been an NDP member of Parliament for the last 15 years. You've Correct. seen this kind of change in, in the, the global political climate. Yeah. What in your mind is, should the NDP be concerned about, sort of as a way to respond to this kind of a feeling of disenfranchisement?
1: Every every. Every successful party is a, in my view, and I don't think I'm the only one with this idea, is a coalition of interests. It's, it's very rare. I mean, you could have the Green Parties, the I don't know what the Rhino Party, largely are. single issue parties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Bloc was successful for years being largely a single issue party, mm-hmm. um, progressive on other things, um, but wanting to break up the country. Other, the others have to get a coalition together. So New Democrats originally historically were a coalition of farmers labor mm-hmm. uh, and faith groups. And one by one, th- that relationship has either strained or broken entirely. Mm-hmm. And that has happened. I don't think it was the NDP doing it. I think the, the, the sway of progressive politics had a, not a lot of nice things to say about people of sure. faith in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Yeah. I think working people, uh, working class people, haven't always seen themselves reflected in us because of our tension with the environment and natural resources so there's been strains on all of those coalitions that you need to put together in order to have a shot Mm -hmm. and i think the thing that the party needs to decide on going into this election and hopefully that's already been decided is what is your coalition of interests yeah who are the groups that you're i know exactly what they are for the conservatives i'm pretty confident and i feel pretty confident of what that coalition was for trudeau to get in yeah which he also has his own challenges in maintaining absolutely yeah
2: so, for the NDP, in in recent years, I think, it's largely been seen as two camps. Cor- correct me if I'm wrong or if you disagree. Mm. Um, but the one camp is sort of the uh, promiscuous progressives and genuine progressives, largely out of urban centers, Okay. as well as the labor movement, mm. union activists, a lot of people in rural areas where mm-hmm. you see sort of the blue-orange ridings. Right. Um, I'd put your writing in that camp, being sure. largely rural, sort mm-hmm. of working class.
1: Mm. Um, is, is that sort of? It's an interesting demarcation. I don't know if it. There's, there's not going to be any system or analysis that holds in all cases. Of course, for sure. sure. Um, there, there, there can be that urban, more elite, progressive, intellectual. You know, wants organic food, wants carbon taxes, wants to understand the world that way. Um. See, my my struggle with it is only that I think we falsely think of Elections Canada in Canada as Canadian elections. And they're not. They're regional and sub-regional elections that all happen to happen at the same time. (laughs) Right? As As we say, there's a national election in Canada. What is the issue? And I say, wrong question. What are the issues, depending on where you're standing at the time? Yeah. And for the NDP, that's also true. So. Rural Vancouver Island looks a lot different than a New Democrat in rural Quebec or rural Atlantic Canada, in terms of those sets of interests. So I've struggled with that. I think there have been the classic brown, so-called brown-green fights: people wanting to chop down, kill a lot of trees, and other people wanting more hybrids. The um, and I think that's what the uh, what was called the blue-green coalition for a while was labor and environment trying to work together. And there have been those moments, but I, I think. The labor executive has not always brought the labor membership along for the ride. Yeah. And they're looking at, you know, a harper and seeing some of their values reflected. Or that the union movement is the successful parts became solidly middle and upper middle class. Where I live, one of the biggest unions is now Unifor. That's at an aluminum smelter. Well, if you're a steady working person, you're making 140, 160. You do that for a year, it feels really great. You do that for 30 years, maybe some of your interests change. And solidarity and um, the proletariat doesn't really enter <laughs> into it nearly yeah. as much as it did when you were 18 years old and struggling, right? And so that that's, I think that, you know, maybe we changed, maybe the people underneath us changed. Maybe farmers who were originally part of our coalition changed in their interests. Farms got a lot larger. Yeah. They got a lot less family oriented. Our appeal in Tommy Douglas's day to a farmer is different than a farmer working the prairies now, for sure, sure. because they're yeah. they're large to medium sized businesses with huge debt and worries about the markets, and that was not stuff that was talked about, I don't think, in the same way a generation or two before.
0: Yeah, I used to, I used to live in Saskatchewan and uh, was had the privilege of meeting a lot of, of you know luminaries of right. the Saskatchewan NDP when right. I was there. I was very involved, and uh, I had a conversation with uh, with Lauren Calvert at one point about right. this exact thing, which is he, he said. Just the, what a farming community looks like changed entirely, and how totally. a farmer thinks of themselves, totally. like how they position themselves in the world. As you said, it's just now they think of themselves as business people, yes, and then not as, as sort of members of, of farming communities in the same way. It's Much not less to say so. that you know farming communities don't exist, but it's that no, their conception of themselves in the world in Saskatchewan, and Canada, has this. And so changed.
1: apply that over to the labor movement, yeah, which is different than people who are part of a union. The labor movement has politics, they have leadership, sure. they have issues they're trying to push. But if I take the however many Canadians are members of unions, uh, they might be much more concerned with their pension than they are with so-called classic union issues.
2: My personal anecdote on this is, I'm from, <laughs> well, not, not the one you're thinking okay. of, but, uh, but being from Fort McMurray. Yes. Uh, so as you exit the town on Highway yeah. 63, yeah. there's a big billboard. That was up for a very many years, and it said, This is what a union town looks like. Yes. And then it had all of the different locals' logos. That's right. Um, but from the exterior, looking at Fort McMurray, I don't think anyone really thinks of Fort McMurray as a, a, as a union town in the typical way that the labor movement is conceived these days. Like, That's Fort, Fort McMurray, being that it represents the oil industry, is d- despite using a lot of unionized labor has very different interests than sort of the broad labor movement as it's conceived in, you know, much of the rest of the country.
1: Right, because what's your your primary interest if you're a union member in Fort Mac? You need to vote for a party that's going to keep the party going, so to speak. Yeah. And anyone who comes in and says, well, climate change is a problem. Maybe we got to wean ourselves up. That's all threats to your primary interest, which is feeding your family. Someone can, you know, we can appeal to union members in Fort Mac about, a national pharmacare program and other things that might be interesting, but does it hit the top of the list? And the top of the list is a pipeline and we're not on side with an expansion of more pipelines. So right away they say, I'd love to be with you, but, and that, I don't think that happened at once. I think that happened over time. Sure. Right. Well it's interesting to watch the conservatives
0: actually because if you if you look at them in the house and I know you often do <laughs> being there yourself quite a bit um they they really do embrace a lot of this kind of like populist blue collar language Very of, much. of you know this is you know these liberal billionaires and uh yeah I could I
1: could clip at least part of the average conservative question and it would sound like someone making a speech at a union hall yeah Right? very much these so. people don't care about you they're with their wealthy friends and their elites and golf courses and blah, blah, blah. and it's like well that sounds like a union hall speech yeah where where I would argue with with folks is that the package that you get when you get somebody who's going to defend the pipeline expansion for Fort Mac is also a package that means um, your neighbor's not going to necessarily get the same support as you would if you got the NDP package right but I don't think people vote that way. I think people vote on, on issues that circulate to the top make their way that combined with um yeah some general sentiments about feelings towards leaders sure. parties, right
0: yeah politics is democratic politics is always emotive and that's not necessarily a bad thing right it's just that oh, it, it is what it is
1: I think human decision-making is 98% kind of <laughs> Absolutely. And then our brain catches up a split yeah. second later and says, oh, that's why I like that person. Rationalizes <laughs> everything backwards. Yeah. We're incredible at it. All the science is pointing us that way. And I think I think that's one thing politics hasn't done well with. I think that's something New Democrats haven't done well with. We often make what I would say is much more of a head than a heart appeal. Mm-hmm. I think Jack was one of the few that, that tried to do both and, and sometimes was very successful at it. But I think folks form impressions based on a whole bunch of intuitive feelings and then later come in and say, it's because of this yeah. policy or that policy. That's why I don't like those guys or I like those guys. And yeah. I think the only thing I'm interested in hearing from pollsters is slapping up the four pictures of the party leaders and saying, how do you feel about these folks? Yeah. Tell Actually, me, tell me what evokes.
0: This is a great tie-in to the interview we had a couple of weeks ago with David Moskow about uh, political psychology. Yeah, so,
1: David would so. fall into one of those. Good plug there. Ah. <laughs> um,
0: so, actually, one thing about about because you've seen sort of this this at least broad you know time trend here. Is there anything you would say you heard a lot more about on the doorstep fifteen years ago compared to now, or, or
2: vice versa? Can, can you set the scene a little bit for sure. where the country was at when you first started running, or when? Paul, Paul Martin
1: was prime minister. The central debate within the punditry was, would he break Mulrooney's supermajority record? The election was going to come at any moment. He had just ascended to prime minister, but he wanted his own mandate. Mm -hmm. Um, So that election, for those of us running first time, was a race against the clock. We didn't know when it was coming down. And in the early part of 2004 was when the Gomery inquiry was kicking into full gear. And uh, opponents of Martin were leaking like sieves, and the notion of this being a real thing became a real thing. And so the, the doorstep for me in the Northwest, I think it depends on who's asking. And I, as a, as a rookie, hope to be soon first-time MP, is different than a five-time incumbent on the doorstep. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about my record. I'm not talking about perspectives on things. I'm just introducing myself right. and leaving that impression hopefully in a positive way so what issues were coming up guns were coming up a lot where i live uh raw export was a thing because we were losing mills um but i think one thing that does because we call it the horseshoe politics in the west sometimes where there's a canadian political spectrum liberals usually land themselves in the middle and the right and left and a voter made over time move through the spectrum they might start off young one classic (laughs) trope is they start off on the left when they're young and they gradually move and become more conservative as they get older. I think sometimes that reverses, but it doesn't matter. Um, in the West, people in where I live, they don't run through the middle. They go NDP conservative. So it's like right. they jump the top of the horseshoe. And that's got some populist elements in it. It's got some elements of who's going to be able to speak loudly and sufficiently uh, forcefully for us. And who's not captive or likely to be captive of the Ottawa bubble. Because there's a general sentiment, and reform dined out on this for years, is that the, the, that alienation feeling is real. And it gets amplified time and again, not just on things like energy policy, but just having a lot of elections announced before you voted. Which really sucks. And, yeah. which, and one small disappointment is we tried to correct that this time when we were reforming election rules to say, is there any way we can just really narrow the gap so there isn't four hours when polls have announced in one part of the country until polls close in another, like could be, and, and that was part
0: of your work on C seventy six, right? Yeah,
1: the government's new election bill. We said here is a couple of tweaks that would just make people feel like they're doing something together rather than an afterthought. And sometimes, if somebody does a sweep, if there's a wave, like there was for Trudeau last time, yeah, you feel like an afterthought in British Columbia. I, I was in and Saskatchewan
0: Alberta. and was watching Newfoundland turn bright red, and right. then followed by the the rest of Atlantic Canada. I was like, well.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's, a, there's an interest. I mean, you've run your campaign. Voters have made their decisions. There's yeah. only maybe 20 or 30% of voters still to go. Sure. But I actually think it psychologically impacts everybody, which is yeah. the power is not here. The power is elsewhere. They're going to decide what happens to my country. And they're just kind of asking for my opinion, but not really listening to it.
2: I think there is also a very real element of how it actually impacts the election, whether or not voters turn out. Right, whether or not they who they cast their ballot for, all of these things, right.
1: if if they're watching the news just before they go to the polls, right? Because it's very discouraging. Is it? And there's a demonstrable impact on that. Like you can, we've we've had this many times in the West, when you tip over the box, the voter box, you you get stratified layers like an archaeological date. <laughs> right? Like where the early voters were this. Yeah. The news was announced of a Harper majority or a Trudeau majority or a minority, maybe. and and if it's, particularly if it's a majority, you can see. It suddenly go dark one color. It's quite yeah. amazing, um, and no one's ever had the science to prove it. But we've seen it through hundreds of balloting ballot boxes and polling stations that it's real. If you get the announcement four hours, three hours before polls close, the last three hours of polling is 100% effective. So
0: do people? Do people just? Is a bandwagon effect? They go for. There's the a bit of yeah. People winners. like
1: to vote for winners, right? Yeah. I like to say I was part of voting for a winner. Um, <laughs> there is also, I think, there's a turnaway effect. Sure. Because really, what's the point? Yeah, exactly at that point. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm fixing kids dinner. I've, I've been meaning to vote all day. And for that 10, 15% of on the fence voters, not they haven't made their minds up. They're just on the fence of whether they're going to vote or not. Mansbridge is on the radio saying it's done. Well, skip it. And so I think voter turnout and all that kind of... That's, that's one of the, the, again, sliding doors sort of moments. If we'd been able to achieve some sort of change to the voting system, there would be no way to know fully because it would be so hard to pull off a sweep that that ends halfway through Ontario yeah it would take a party getting 80% of the vote for that to happen under other voting proportional type voting systems sure and it was it was a side effect it wasn't the reason we were doing it but it was an effect that I looked forward to where it was like yeah your vote matters and it's it's, on the door when you knock you got to be able to answer that question why does my vote matter Mm -hmm. and if you can't then you have a problem yeah And there's all sorts of reasons why people will say my vote doesn't count. Cynicism, you guys are a bunch of liars. But if they say Ontario and Quebec are (laughs) deciding we're irrelevant, it's hard to argue with somebody who has voted in many elections. Or my candidate never wins. I live in Skeena, I vote liberal, liberals never win. What's the point? And I'm saying, oh, go get out there, man. Like it's your democratic right. People fought and died. It's not a persuasive argument. Mm-hmm. World War Two is generally not a persuasive argument. Sure. <laughs> for voting in 2019. It yeah. isn't. It's, no, it's... it's, it's you're guilting them. And it's like, oh, could we could we use something else, which would be... I can dem- demonstrably show how your vote's going to be reflected in parliament. Yeah. That would be great.
0: This is actually a great segue. To, I mean, you, you've really preempted my big question about democratic reform and why you think it matters. Uh, and I think That's you, the biggest you, you've addressed a lot of it, which is just a lot of people having... That um, that concern at the doorstep of why do why do what, I even care? What did someone
1: say to me today? I was having lunch with an eminent Canadian, and they said people choke on change. I thought, oh, oh I choke on change. That there can be something like you. you we, we I talked to a lot of because uh, we looked at this with referenda and how referenda work badly generally. Yes, it's surprisingly, because <laughs> as a Democrat, I'm into them. It's so easy to argue for a referendum type vote on an yeah. issue. Clear question, clear answer. Voters have the power. Go get them when you get into the science of how people vote in referendum as opposed to general elections, yeah, it ain't great. It's horrible, actually. <laughs> it's not a great way to do it. And for yeah. those of your listeners who like direct democracy, the, the, you know, the Swiss model of voting through every law that comes through parliament, do not wish this on your worst enemy. <laughs> I know a lot of Swiss, and they hate it, and it's just a mess. And so looking at that, um, one thing we learned from California in particular, because they're the yes. North American experts, was if the, question, if the question you're asking, because they do so many ballot referenda, is it does not have 75 percent support when you start? Don't do it. Yeah, you need three quarters on side before the first day of the campaign. I, the, I agree all you, you do me. is lose support, and I said, why? Yeah. why? Why couldn't you gain support for an issue, taxation or voting or whatever? And they said because the no side has an easier argument to make always, and they can lie. Status so quo. Yeah. Yeah. They they can argue status quo and they can also lie about the fear of change and invoke the fear of change yeah. evoke the fear of change and that that proved true I've watched a few referenda happen and it's amazing I'll be in debates with people and they're like this is you'll lose your MLA you'll lose your political representation and I'll say well you, n- no I mean that's factually but the effect has already been had yeah there's thirty percent who were kind of leaning against and kind of went oh hmm. that might be true I'm out so. Yeah,
0: I, I grew up in Washington State and I had a very similar experience of watching it ballot initiatives roll right. at 80% right. and then lose yeah. <laughs> on election day. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty incredible.
1: Companies won't take those contracts because those companies are, of course, interested in being a part of successful campaigns to get more contracts. Yeah, And so they just have internal company rules that if you come to them and say, we'd like to hire you to help run our ballot initiative in California or Washington or wherever, unless they can first pull 75% positive polling they won't take the contract wow yep
0: that's actually that's amazing
1: it is it's, it's staggering and it's it just it really makes the cause for the status quo that people are when you poll canadians and ask them are they open to change they overwhelmingly say yes when you ask them to consider switching their coffee brand they'll tell you to get the f out right yeah. like we don't humans generally like to know what they know and voting is one of those things that people don't want to think about yeah now you're asking me to think about it can i just not
0: so for in terms of, of democratic... Well, specifically electoral reform, I suppose, because democratic reform is a broader conversation. Yeah. But on the electoral reform conversation, what do you think is the best model for, you know, let's say the NDP wins majority government and it says, okay, let's do proportional representation. What What do you think is the I best th- way I to do that? I think I wouldn't
1: pick up any other country's particular voting system because you can't apply Germany to Canada or sure. Ireland to Canada. We're just geographically, historically different. I think our urban and rural... Reality makes me want to lean towards voting systems that acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. So I think a, a mixed member uh, voting system in which you have a mix of members, some directly and then a proportional top up to make the vote that comes out in the end also be similarly reflected. So a 40% vote conservative, the House is approximately 40% conservative. Mm-hmm. That's the overarching goal, I think is a good goal. Uh, yet then account for the geographic reality of rural Canada and so, have urban ridings clustered and then have uh, rural ridings not clustered. Mm-hmm. Be standalone ridings. And sure. that just makes intuitive sense to me.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, multi-member ridings for, for urban yeah. centers. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You would just draw a circle around Surrey mm-hmm. and Mississauga and, you know, the, the boroughs around Montreal that are cohesive enough. Yeah. Not that all of Mississauga is the same or all of Richmond's the same, but they know themselves as Richmond. Yeah. And if there were three MPs coming out of Richmond they'd be fine because there's three MPs coming out of Richmond yeah they'd just be how they got there would be different sure so no no demonstrable difference and I and I think you I'm now of the opinion that you need a citizens assembly involved okay if there's just (laughs) just politicians people are automatically suspicious yeah because they it's very difficult I tried this with this government I would say to the democratic reform minister we need to put our partisanship on the table just acknowledge it see it there and try to work around it. And she was a, a rookie MP as well as minister. And she said, well, we, we're not partisan. You guys might be, but we're not. And I was like, <laughs> all due respect, minister. You you might think you're not partisan, but A, you are. B, everybody working for you is. As is everybody working for me. And it's Okay. You, but the way you get around it or the way you deal with it is you say that it's there as opposed to pretend it's not. Yeah. Um, so having a citizens' assembly working in, in concert with parliament would be good because there's a strong legitimacy factor there. So
2: mm-hmm. if I recall, one of one of the solutions you posed at the time was to do the one election under a different That's model right. and then have sort of the I referendum question. I think two? we wanted
1: to – yeah, two felt like it was necessary to – because one election is not the same as another and you – Ideally, you do more than two, but two just to give people the assurance.
2: So are you still inclined towards that model? Yeah.
1: Or is the proposal for Citizens' Assembly sort of in, in place of... Yeah, I, I, the parties come up with a policy. My, my, my general view is you have citizens involved. You have, you've, you've campaigned on a mandate to change the voting system. Very important. Yeah. If you are successful, you then bring in a bill to change that voting system to respect what it is you campaigned on. You have two elections under that model. And then you have a referendum at the end of that to give people the assurance that if it is not producing the results that you want, you can default back to that status quo. Mm -hmm. My my general reading around the world is, uh, countries have held referenda afterwards, or they've just the the polling shows zero interest in going back. The new model becomes the status quo. Yeah, people see the results; it's not chaos. Government seems to work. My vote counts. Okay, let's move on. Yeah, and then and and when I explain our voting system to Europeans in particular, they can't believe it. <laughs> when I explain the Senate to Europeans, <laughs> their minds are blown. They just they have no idea how we accept it. The yeah, British, yeah, yeah. the British think we're nuts, and I think they're right.
0: <laughs> I mean, their House of Lords is just pretty comparable, and it, they, their powers are a bit softer. Bingo, that's the big one. Yeah. yeah,
1: and that's what we've been experiencing as this Parliament winds down. Right? Yeah, this threat that could the Senate just suffocate government bills by just not calling like wait a second what's the protocol the protocol is not written down anywhere they're meant to be an equal chamber yeah but they don't have the democratic legitimacy so what do you do and the protocol has always been that they will accept eventually the house's will in england they have the power because they don't have a constitution they've invoked a power to say if the senate and the house find themselves in opposition so the, the basic insurance policy or safety valve that the british have that we don't is that if the two sides, if the Senate and the House, what's called, find themselves in opposition to one another, that a simple majority vote in the House on a bill will overrule the Senate and mm-hmm. then we'll move on. In Canada, we're told that would require a constitutional amendment. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh so, well, that's easy. Not <laughs> a lot of enthusiasm for that, as well. The, I mean, you have to. It's hard for me to be at total peace with the idea of authority without responsibility yeah and it, accountability and
0: it's been tough I mean watching just in the last week or two I think the Senate has been Tony Dean was out uh, Senator Tony Dean was out saying people are very mean to me on Twitter um, well, and there's it's been like, well there's been a number
1: of revelations from senators recently
0: yes and it's <laughs> been quite it's also the the humor of of Senator Dean finding that the cache of mean tweets was very Wernickian as a
1: as yeah, a power move w- Wernick had that Poor me thing. Um, well, the Senates were also complaining about all the lobbying. They're exhausted with all the lobbying. <laughs> and I was like, well, Senators, here's why. And I think that's part of the uptick in the lobbying registry. Oh, yeah. Big time is because of the Senate. Because it's cheap. Yeah. Right? Well, you get a few Senators to agree on something, you're on your way. As opposed to trying to convince an entire party the house of Commons. yeah and
0: looking through the the lobbying records on for instance c58 which i know you were you were of course 48 48, 48, excuse 48 me, yeah, yes which you were very interested in they, yeah, they had something we like looked a, at the same lobby records. yes 125 odd meetings over six months
2: the yeah. senate has also just sort of built itself to be a wild card and as hmm. we've re, or as the trudeau government has rebuilt the senate That's model right. basically That's more accurate. um without changing a lot of the formal structures they That's sort right. of rebuilt it by appointments alone yeah uh, that the Senate today is sort of slowly building its own precedent
1: and its own legitimacy. Yeah, but and yet without that fundamental legitimacy of who are you accountable to, if you are not acting well. For right? sure. What promises did you make to get here? Well, none. What's yeah. your mandate? Whatever I want.
2: I guess the the inkling of accountability that we've seen on that has been Senator uh, the votes of the senators to hold Senator Bayak Bayak accountable in some sure. s- in some small way. Yeah, sure. I mean it was for but, being
0: egregiously racist in public and not so much a policy
2: area but a- agreed but, but <laughs> how do they but govern themselves? Yeah, this, is the starting of the building of the precedent there uh, particularly among the independent senators group. Mm-hmm.
1: It could end up working out. It could also be a ticking time bomb. Yeah. It really could. And and to so if for an example when we had a a tanker bill a tanker ban bill in the in the Senate um, and the Senate was promising, well, tried to kill it. They, they spit it out of committee with a negative vote, which meant that the bill could die. The Senate had to affirm that. And there was a lot of people in social media and, and commentary from Alberta saying, way to go, senators, this is great. And I said, you know, I understand your happiness now because yeah. you don't like the bill. Careful what you wish for there. Careful what you wish for, because I could imagine an Andrew Scheer government pushing a pro-oil bill and the Senate deciding absolutely not. And then saying, what about the democratic rights? These are unelected people. And it's like, kids, don't you can't have it both ways on this one. I don't it, Trudeau sort of t, you know tinkered with it a bit, but didn't get into the, the, the guts of it, if you will, yeah. and by, by doing that, and I know a lot of prominent liberal leaders and former leaders were very uh, upset with the reforms because as parliamentarians yeah. they saw what could happen yeah. and we were but the, the case for senators not being seen as the scourge of the country, they need to conduct themselves. In a better way and need to not cross over that line of starting to reject mandated bills out of the House Commons. But how many, like Ron Ambrose's bill and Romeo Saginash's is a great example. Totally being held hostage. A bill that the House unanimously passed because of some of the politics going on with one group of senators, not even a majority of senators, we're not going to pass a bill that Canadians overwhelmingly support that the House over, well, unanimously voted for and a, a group of folks who don't face an election. Uh, the, what's the consequence? That's the question, right? Is, is if, you, if you behave what I would call badly in this case, what's yeah. the consequence? And there's none that I can see. And I think one of the other, the, the election is certainly part of
2: it. Um, but just the, the name recognition of senators sort of to Canadians, uh-huh. like, that Canadians don't know senators that's right. right before before I came to Ottawa I'm not sure I could have named more than
1: two
0: a pre-Duffy scandal I don't think like anybody could have named it no really yeah. like, it was no, usually if people are naming
1: senators it's <laughs> because the senator's have done something bad <laughs> yeah. it's rare there's the odd one that, that seemed to you know on a certain issue yeah, we do a lot of work over many decades and people would say Senator Kirby I remember having a decent reputation and mm-hmm. people knowing of him Hugh Siegel Siegel, yeah Romeo for, for of the exception not the rule
2: yeah, yeah they sort of toil
1: in anonymity to the average Canadian it's a real strange gig Extremely because you're legislators but not in the classic sense one of the craziest things to do is be on a DC trip Washington trip with a mix of House of Commons MPs and Senators Because, of course, within the Washington experience, it's all about hierarchy, and senators are higher than uh, uh, members of Congress. So the U.S. senators will always defer to the Canadian senators. Oh, senator. Well, what's what's the what's the country thinking about this? And you'll have you'll have Canadian ministers of the crown sitting in the room, just like oh god. And the senators love it, right? Because they're in their glory. <laughs> well, senator, Ken, you know Kennedy. I'll I'll tell you what Canada thinks, and the government's going to do this. And they're just they're in their glory, and it's a it's a strange. And somewhat uh, galling kind of experience. I would imagine it's, it's, it's hard to take, <laughs> man. It's very funny because the power defers the power in the states, right? And, and they, if they say that's a senator over there, then boom, boom, we know who's in charge. And it's like, no, they're appointed. They no, never. <laughs> they're mind. not real. They're not <laughs> <protocol>. the <laughs> same thing. They have these funny protocols.
0: On uh, on Democratic reform more broadly, because obviously you you had C seventy six, which which dealt with changes to elections, but also changes to to really. The democratic process to and and not just to talk about the bill in particular but but in general for instance you've seen um big change in social media you mentioned right at the top of our conversation how that sort of steered political conversations yes and how do you kind of see the the discourse around we had the international grand committee here in ottawa a couple yeah. weeks ago how do you kind of see that discussion sort of going forward and how how that impacts the, the sort of democratic reform file more broadly
1: Well, first, Charlie Angus's work on this was exceptional, just in bringing parliamentarians globally together to say we have a common problem, which is the threats to our democracy will fundamentally undermine people's faith in voting and our democracy, etc. Never mind the the, the leading to violence and all the rest of that. Um, So that was good work. I think the government seemed to lack the courage or willingness to actually do something Mm -hmm. effective. Because we, we could see how the, the unholy trinity of big data, social media vectors being able to pump out a lot of messages quickly, and bad actors. Yeah. You put those three into a triangle and you have Brexit. Yeah, a yeah, very,
0: very straight line there. It's, it seemed
1: clear to me. And so what can we affect? Well, it's, we can affect social media platforms. I, I believe they are a town square. And yes, they should allow discourse, even stuff that offends me, to take place. But when it streams into screaming fire in a theater, then clearly you have some responsibility if you're the host. Yeah. Right? And And if they're self-organizing and they're organizing Nazi groups to go kill black people, I don't understand how Facebook says, hey, it's just a town square. Yeah. We just built it.
0: Yeah. And Facebook gives everyone access to everyone, right? Because it is so big. Yeah. Right? That's sort of like when it is the default platform for, for
1: Virtually, you know, with, with great power comes great responsibility, exactly. And, the, and we've allowed it to be the Wild West up until this point, yes. And, and sometimes the Arab Spring will pop along and we'll say, Holy Mac, folks are organizing in ways that the oppressive powers also can't control mm-hmm. or affect on the party side so the government should have and could have done something effective with Facebook I think the relationship was too close to the social media giants sure they're just friends yeah they very like
0: culturally in, t- in yeah, each yeah and Trudeau used to
1: brag about their data mining capabilities and their ability to target <laughs> and hyper target and they hired Cambridge Analytica like they were bought into that stream of thinking until they realized the dark side of it yeah and how Canadians maybe didn't like it I'm, I'm being benevolent here I'm trying to give them credit for having realized the, the dark path they were going down. So they were unwilling, unable to do anything. We could have also done something on the party databases, which are huge. Mm-hmm. And you need them actually to hyper-target and mobilize your message. You can't. It's difficult, we've learned, from the people who are looking to affect an election if you're just scattershotting all the time. Yeah. But if you can give me every Democratic voter in Ohio and their email address, now I got something.
0: Yeah. I was—I uh, had some friends who were in Europe recently. They were—they were chatting right around the, the European Parliament elections with, yeah. with members of, of sort of, uh, you know, sister European parties. Sure. Who were saying they were horrified by what Canadian parties do.
1: Well, <laughs> and, and the, 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 there was some discouraging moments where our Democratic Reform Minister, just within a month or so, said, you know, she was really shocked that social media hadn't done more, yeah, and that the voluntary agreements they weren't willing to go further and why weren't they doing more like what they were doing in Europe and yeah it's like well Minister Europe brought in laws yeah like it's not voluntary that's why they're doing more they're complying <laughs> with the law which you said you didn't want to do yeah. So don't express shock that yeah just asking them please to change some of their business model right because the algorithms the way they're built on hate and yeah sometimes that that conversation gets a lot more traffic than others that is the nature of that beast. And they got to address it. And I think it's a threat to their very business itself. Absolutely. And, and I think maybe Twitter, more than some of the others, have started to recognize that in yeah. small ways. Yeah. And it Twitter- almost feels like a, a train out of control for them a little bit. They don't actually know always. And I don't think politicians do either, or mm-hmm. the public. How do we rein this thing in? Because I, I just as a test almost, I happen to be on the same plane as Catherine McKenna, the environment minister, last week or week before. And we were standing in front of the gate. The gate was C-48, which is the name of the bill that we were talking about <laughs> earlier. I said, Catherine, oh, let's take a picture. You know, to click and I'll, I'll put it up. And I put it up as a test just to dive into her world, world. for a moment. And, it's, and it, you know, it's five minutes of scrolling through the hate. Uh, yeah. And I can do that with Jagmeet Singh. I can do that with Michelle Rempel. I just have to mention them. And then I get to see their world. And so that's where the the hope of all of that dialogue breaks down because as a politician with not a thick enough skin, I suppose, I get affected by it. When people scream at me personal, horrible things, it sometimes gets in and weighs on me. So my only recourse is to just not look. Yeah. You just, I don't look at mentions. I don't look at comments. And it's a shame because 9 out of 10, 19 out of 20, I don't know, most of the comments are saying something... Helpful, constructive, useful—asking questions, but I can't get to them. Yeah, because I got to wade through the hate in order to get there, and doing that makes me an awful person.
0: It's kind of—it's kind of
1: stunning in a sense that that don't read the comments has
0: been an axiom of being online for the last ten years, right? Yes. Like when you think that it, when we're talking about the age of social media, that you cannot actually. Deal with the engagement because it is awful. Well, you need, I mean, and I would, I, I would time. like to
1: see this. I've actually talked to Parliament about doing this for the next session. Not me, but somebody else. To, to here's some best practices for, for mental health. Mm-hmm. Smart. This is, this is what you got to look at on alcohol. This is what you got to look at on travel, fatigue, sleep, and here's your mental health guidelines on social media. Because mm-hmm. there's ways to do it that folks are starting to come up with, so you can survive and not hate the world, or yourself, or mm-hmm. both. And so that would be good. Because right now, it's just, you know, every person to themselves. And what ends up happening is most of us, some MPs like to dive in and they scream and yell at people screaming at them. But I think that's the minority. It's not terribly productive. Most either. of us just lose the, the public space. Yeah. We just, we just, we, it's a one-way conversation. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what I've told my citizens that, the people I represent. If you want to talk to me, you can't do it on a comment board because I'm not going to read it. Yeah. Because the comment just before you or just after you called me a horrible Nazi, yeah. and I just I can't get there, man. It's just I'm too sensitive, I guess, or I don't know. It's just it's, it's, a, it's just a human reaction to have people use your name and then a whole bunch of racist diatribes against you.
0: There, there was a great article actually that was I think published today in The Verge about uh, the people who are paid to moderate Facebook, right? Uh, and uh-huh. how their conditions are horrifying, horrible. like the stuff they have to look at all day. Is it, I mean the 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 Slurs are the least of it, right? It's right, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, so, no, no,
1: yeah. yeah. It's, it's the to be a, a woman, to be a, a racialized person, and in politics or a public figure of any kind, it's just it's just it's bloody horrible. And so, but again, <laughs> do we let that dominate, right? Do we let those folks take over, or do we say this is a viable thing? And I think the government trying to figure out a more viable way to work with the industry to do it would be better than the. Hands-off approach, which is yeah. no, I don't think helping anybody, including the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think they're a monopoly; they should be broken up. Yeah, I think we're definitely getting. <laughs> Just there. slide that yeah. one. Right. <laughs> you're yeah. 100 right. It's it's uncompetitive. Yeah, it and it, it makes for bad markets. Yeah, the most most conservative people imaginable don't like monopolies, so it's not a lefty thing. It's. It's just bad for business.
0: Yeah, and actually the states we're starting to see weirdly bipartisan emerging consensus. Yeah, on because there are some smart
1: people in Congress.
0: Yeah, and the conservatives here, I think, are broadly positive towards, at least the ones who worked on the file, are going in that direction. So that's been interesting to see. Yeah, as well. I think
1: this this got back to the relationship with the PMO. Yeah. The Prime Minister's office and yes. the people we're talking about, the companies we're talking about, and there was no way they were going to stomp on those toes. Yeah, that's what it came down to. So
0: at the end of uh, 15 years in yes. Parliament, uh, Twilight, what, I believe the Twilight. <laughs> indeed. What, if there is a single achievement that you are most proud of in all your time here, what do you think it is?
1: Um, it was when I got slammed for, uh, and it, it happened in the in the most curious of ways. There was an initiative that before politics had been involved in to the side a bit. It was called the Great Bear Rainforest. And it was just an idea of looking at conservation in a different way. Mm -hmm. So it was a project to set aside a whole bunch of coastal uh, rainforest, but include people in it, not a park, and include indigenous people particularly. So it it was a novel idea. And they'd raised a bunch of cash and they were waiting on 30 million from the feds to then leverage another 90 of private money. And we couldn't, in the waning days of the liberal government, I couldn't convince Dion to do it. Lawyers, 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 months and months. And I was like, man, Stefan, this is going to look good on you. You're going to stand up on stage and people are going to clap and they're going to think you're wonderful. He was environment minister at the time. And uh, nope, wouldn't happen. And then the conservatives come in and they weren't so shiny on the environment. And Rana was the environment minister. and But because she was under such siege, she eventually was replaced, shuffled. And Harper put John Baird in. Not for his environmental credentials, but just to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. And so Baird came to us and said, "I need. do you have three things? <laughs> we said, yeah, we can come up with three. And one of them was this. And I can remember the night. I haven't told this story very often, or hardly at all. But Jack and I were in Vancouver, and John happened to be there as well, and some PMO guys. And we just met at the bottom of their hotel in the bar and had a glass of wine. And he said, what's it take? And I said, $30 and so the reason I got slammed was when we finally got the deal. It was two weeks from start to finish, which is pretty fast for Ottawa. Wow! Uh, you know, up on stage, and Baird kept saying he kept sending his guy over, saying you know the minister really wants you up on stage for this. And I was like, ah, it's good. We're in Vancouver. <laughs> like, let the let him have it. You know, just four times they came back, and I thought this is this is getting odd. Anyways, the the next day it makes global news. Global news. Two thousand front pages around the world. Because it's, it's a good, and my party, I had pitched them on question period. I said, we should get this in question period just as a celebration thing. And they mm-hmm. said, well, it's not very newsworthy. So the next day I came in with the news clips into our comms department <laughs> and said, yeah, apparently 2,000 front pages. The Guardian, the Times, the Figaro. Like, I mean, clearly you were right. Um, but the front page of the Toronto Star was NDP sells out for $30 million. Ah. Because they said it was in my writing and up until that point, I hadn't really thought about it being in my riding. It's not; it's a very low-populated part of my riding. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like bring home the gravy kind of thing. Sure. And I remember flipping open the Toronto Star, above the fold, page one. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, what about cross-partisan stuff that makes Planet better? I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It was through a different lens. So I was, I was proud of that because it was counterintuitive. It took a lot of um, subtlety. It took Jack's type of leadership it took a government in trouble like all sorts of circumstantial stars alignment thing and we had six days to get that agreement or else the whole 90 million was leaving the country right and so within six days we got them signed off that is a good one treasury was done and it was it was out the door and so it's it's remarkable when you when you do see government want to do something and they've got a clear shot things move fast it can it can be quite breathtaking and it, it, it does remind me it impacts and so since then that 120 million fund has been rolling over and developed tons of jobs and we haven't clear cut the hell out of the north coast and central coast which is a place you probably wouldn't want to necessarily clear cut it's going to take a thousand years to put back
0: yeah that's uh, the old, the old growth there that's,
1: uh, that would be a tragedy to lose yeah they're still logging but in a smarter way so yeah there's moments there's other things there's other little things um, that I really like but um, that one feels good because it's just going to be there it's just going to be there. And it doesn't really have my name attached. It's not, it's not you know, the Nathan Cullen Great Bear Rainforest. <laughs> it's just there. If someone <laughs> offered, would you? No. No, I, I had some... Uh, we had started a fund for something when I first started, and it, the, we just hadn't spent it. So the credit union came back to me and said, you have this money that you donated. Do you want to just do a bursary? And I said, sure, let's... let's social entrepreneurs, kids who are really making changes in their world, let's give it to, you know, 4000 bucks to four kids. And they said, great, it's called the Nathan Cullen bursary and I was like no 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 no, just just They're like mm, no it's gotta it's gotta have your name attached to it and I feel the kids have now gotten the money and I've been a little shy to even phone them hey congratulations on winning my bursary <laughs> aren't you honored I, I, it feels pretty some nice picture of your face and oh okay. god <laughs> whatever There's um, little buttons of you that they have to wear right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah it's just as a condition that's right
0: uh, Nathan Cullen, thank you oh, enormously for for doing this. This has been a really great conversation. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, seriously, it's it's great, and thank you for for all the years you've put in as a as a great
2: MP. Also, my pleasure. Thank and,
0: you. And uh, you have any? Uh...
2: Well, I I guess I'd be remiss if not to ask what what sort of is is next? What broadly are you looking at? Some time to decompress? A little, yeah. The
1: family has a a, a formulating plan to to take off for. A month in an rv kind of boot the kids around I have little kids it's supremely normal yeah yeah super and <laughs> unhook from you know decouple from things sort of shock therapy uh and then get uh, get back to the west coast in a meaningful way and set up shop live in one province you know? <laughs> yeah you've
0: had like one of the longest travel times
1: yep. of any mp yeah i think mine's the worst I've compared with my rural folks and even the Yukon and I was North, they, they, with the North, they, they do better than me. So, yes. yeah. But I've never, I complained about it once to Jack. Uh, I just had a crappy flight and I complained. And it was one of the only times he yelled at me. And he got super really? kind of agitated. And I was like, hey, look, no one put a gun to your head. You put your hand up. You asked for this. Never, never complain. I was like, Jack, I mean, come on. Just beat, man. And he's like, nope, no, nope, no, nope, Never complain. I said, okay, okay why don't you try it sometime <laughs> which he did I mean, he, he traveled a lot he was a good sport he, he, yeah, but he was just having one of those days and he just wanted me to know that part yeah. that you griping about your job when it's a privilege don't just don't complain to yourself if you need to yeah, yeah. awesome thank you so much Nathan. not a bit a pleasure. my pleasure my pleasure